Welcome to Backlog Books. Uh, I do a podcast. I do this regularly. <laughs> In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. And in our opposite corner, we have returning guest and huge Wheel of Time nerd, Daniel. Hello. Great. Let's just get right to it. Obviously, what we're here to talk about is The Dragon Reborn by Robert Jordan. The Dragon Reborn! Oh, he's wearing a what, shirt what, what? that says, let, let the dragon ride again on the wheel, winds of time. I almost said the Wheel of Time. <laughs> You'll get it. There'll be a phrase. Uh, it's in, fine. It'll be in the books eventually. <laughs> I'm going to go through the summary of this book, and then we'll just talk about it. So here's the summary. Winter has stopped the war, almost, yet men are dying, calling out for the dragon. But where is he? Rand Althor has been proclaimed the dragon reborn. Traveling to the great fortress known as the Stone of Tyr, he plans to find the sword Kalindor, which can only be wielded by the Champion of Light, and discover if he truly is destined to battle the Dark One. Following Rand, Moraine and their friends battled dark hounds on the hunt, hoping they reached the heart of the stone in time for the next great test, awaiting the Dragon Reborn. This book was published in 1991, which means we still haven't found a Wheel of Time book younger than me. <laughs> it was early. The first three books all came out within like two years of each other. Yeah. They were pretty quick. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the one sentence summary of this book, of what mm. happens in this book. Look, Robert Jordan, it's not that hard. (laughs) So the team splits up and takes four different paths to Tyr, whereupon they all reunite, and Rand does something absolutely bananas and fulfills one of the prophecies about the dragon. Nice. That's it. That's what happens in this book. You're really good at summaries. Thank you. It's like I've had practice. (laughs) So you got to the end of the third book. I did. 2,400 pages. Hundreds of characters. Are we at hundreds already? I'm sure. Probably. Probably. What did you think by the end of this book? How do you feel about the story as a whole? It sure is taking its time. (laughs) Which I feel like is going to be my common refrain (laughs) for these books. Of course it is. Of course it is. It's yeah. a whole wheel of it. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to a lot of, like, you read very broadly, mm-hmm. and particularly intentionally for the efforts of your podcast, you've read various classics, horror, sci-fi, lots of newer, more modern fictions, fantasy. You tend towards mostly fantasy, mm-hmm. not a lot of yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. And a lot have styles. And a lot of new voices have entered the market since these books, since Jordan was writing. Yeah. Aside from the verboseness (laughs) and the travels and interruptions, like it's constantly like these first three books are quest books. And so you're constantly following these characters that are literally just chasing stuff around the world, their known world. And that's the adventure. It's kind of a classic Um, quest structure. Are there things that you are finding you're enjoying enough in these stories so far? I think yes. I mean, it's interesting and it's well-crafted and it is well-written. It's just that Jordan's style is 
verbose. Like yeah. he's going to spend a long time on this. And then like at the very end, you get 50 pages of or 20 pages of epic battle and then it's over. Like <laughs> that's that's how this goes. Build to a climax and then quick. And that's it. Done. It's like, okay, we're here. We're done. That was all we needed to get to. Um, I am interested in reading the fourth book more specifically because i know that it changes then mm -hmm. like it like the focus of it changes um and so i'm interested to see how that goes once jordan kind of accepts because i feel like that's the point he accepts he's like going to be in this forever mm -hmm. like yeah my understanding from some of the the articles and interviews that i've seen with uh, his wife harriet uh, who was also the editor, and some of the Brandon talking to Brandon Sanderson, who finished the series. Uh, particularly, I guess it was interviews with Harriet and Tom Darity, who was the chief editor of Tor. Okay. When Jordan finished this book, the third book, he still anticipated that the series would be finished in six. Which I mean, the like pacing, and especially what he did in this book specifically where he's following everyone else and Rand is barely in it. Mm -hmm. Like I get, and like the great hunt where he skips three months or whatever right. and just doesn't fill in that time. Like I can see how he was obviously trying to condense it. Trying to move things along, trying to get to the ending, which he knew. Yeah. He already had the last scene of the entire series written mm -hmm. as he was working on these. So he knew where he was going. But kind of the classic motif of fantasy is it's really about the journey. Mm -hmm. So why not take as much time as you want? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I liked about this book in particular, uh, I looked up a statistic earlier when I was like reviewing some things. And Grand is only in this book for two and a half percent of the chapters. Yeah. I love that website where it breaks down the point of view by percentage. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it fun? Yeah. I like that's also like just one of the funny joys of the community that's grown up around the series is that it really is a lot of data analysis. Mm -hmm. It's well, it's like crit roll stats, doing right. like keeping track of every single dice roll in critical <laughs> role. Um yep. like the number of natural twenties, the number of natural ones. Like that is a whole community around that as well. People love statistics. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Nerds. Nerds. <laughs> but the the focus of the story and the reason the book, you know, Becca teases us all the time as I've talked to her and gotten her to read the books. She made it through The Dragon Reborn, but she was so frustrated that he was hardly in it. Yeah. But every other dynamic and character and plot in the book revolves around Rand. Yes. And him finally coming to terms that he's already had it pushed in his face twice and he, he still didn't want to accept this chosen one fate. Yeah. He was still in refusal of the call for a long time. For a long time. This is the end of what you said, 2,400 pages or yeah. whatever. I just, I feel like at the end of the eye of the world and at the end of the great hunt, I was like, okay, so Rand's accepted who he is. <laughs> no. And then the next book Rand was like, <laughs> uh, absolutely not. And wandered off. So I was, by the time I got to the end of this book, I was like, are you sure this time? Like, you, you sure this time? Mm -hmm. Next book's going to start. It's going to be like, ah, no, I'm leaving again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, 
you finally get more time with the tertiary characters. Yes, that's been nice. Particularly, this is the book where you got a little bit of Perrin in mm-hmm. The Great Hunt. And you get his wolf brother stuff starts in book one. Mm-hmm. But now we finally get Matt. That's true. Matt has, I think, 25 or 30 percent. He's got of a the solid, point of views. He gets, he gets a good chunk. Book. You finally get to experience his viewpoint, his struggles. You catch up with him. He finally gets healed. Mm-hmm. So what did you think about these additional characters finally getting exposure to them? I mean, Perrin's been... Okay, Perrin did have some development in this book in that he like started using his wolf brother powers mm-hmm. stuff, sort of near the end um matt's was interesting just because i hadn't i mean he hadn't been anything except like the golem obsessed over the dagger you know like (laughs) that was his whole thing for two books basically pretty much so and then like at the end of the second book he blows the horn of valir like Mm -hmm. that's that's all that matt's done so it was I mean, it's it's been interesting to meet him, and he's he adds a different flavor to it, where Perrin and Rand are sort of like burdened by glorious purpose, right, or whatever. And Matt is like, "I'm leaving. I don't want to be involved in this story at all. I'm gonna go." And he turns around and runs <laughs> smack into the main plot. Yep, it's hilarious, actually. <laughs> now you know Matt's point of like that's his his character yeah (laughs) that's literally it (laughs) tries to leave turns around runs smack into the plot that's a you're really good at summaries i know it's crazy (laughs) perrin of course you mentioned like he is the most responsible from the get-go yes um part of that comes from he had a job he had a job (laughs) he had a mentor he had this the you don't really meet his family in the first book, but you do meet Master Luhan and you get to a brief glimpse of the fact that he has this respect for his elders. He has respect for the community, for traditions. And each time he encounters challenges as they adventure through that first book, and particularly along the Great Hunt, he's the first to really accept that whether he wants to or not, and because of the way the wolf power is starting to affect him, he has to do stuff. Mm-hmm. He can't stand by the sidelines. He can't walk away from this. Yeah. As much as he thinks he wants to not use the wolf powers and go into Lame. the really fucking cool, sorry, wolf <laughs> dream. I mean, the dream stuff is cool. <laughs> Teleron Riod. One of the oh, the favorite little bits that he, that Perrin gets is he he meets Hopper, mm-hmm. and I don't know how affected you were in that first book when Hopper died. It was sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Broken hearted mm-hmm. uh, would would be a general feeling for most people uh-huh. reading this story. Like the <laughs> the bond that got expressed through Jordan's words very quickly became an emotionally pivotal moment for parent mm-hmm. and now he has this eternal clash with the white cooks well they suck they suck right? so, <laughs> i too have an eternal clash with the white cloaks yes. Excellent, as everyone uh... should so he parents journey across while he's trying to catch up with rand he comes across the aeolman mm-hmm. in a cage that's another pivotal moment for him 
Okay, I want to talk about, so the pivotal moments, specifically we know that those are pivotal moments because Min saw them right, and told him that those would be pivotal moments. Mm -hmm. And do you ever, when you are reading these, feel like maybe Robert Jordan leaned a little bit too hard into that as like a, a tool in his writing where he's like, this is significant because it's significant in the story. I did not ever consciously feel that way. Okay. Um, I think part of that is that I'm very used to prophecy sure. as a form of fantasy storytelling. Mm -hmm. And the way Jordan uses prophecy in this series is very classical. Oh, it's yeah. very Greek, you yeah. know, Cassandra and the the Oracle and the Furies and the the Karath Karathan cycle. Um, can't ever remember it, but it's the journey, the journal that is essentially like the Bible work of the fourth age that comes after this. And so that's what you get at the beginning of some of the chapters yeah. in the prologue yeah. um, that mention some of the great deeds that the Dragon Reborn does. And they talk right. about some of the other characters. Most of it's really about the Dragon Reborn. But when Min is definitely the Cassandra archetype, mm -hmm. she's foretelling left and right on every character yeah. and every single person she meets. And even in the very first book, she gives several readings to Moraine. Yeah. And she sees things for certain warders and side characters that you won't get a lot for several books. Mm -hmm. And by the time you come back around to those characters later, you're like, wait, this thing just happened and this was big deal. But men talked about it in the first or second book. Mm -hmm. And to me, that feels really good. That okay. feels very natural in the story because the hints that he drops from her viewings aren't heavy they're not sure. super detailed he's very good at <clears throat> foreshadowing which i know we have discussed before mm -hmm. and that actually would be something i would i would ask of you in reading through these first few books different things that have come up in such a way as either a foretelling or part of the Karathan cycle that moraine's referencing like mm -hmm. things they're trying to figure out in some ways they're trying to figure out what the past is telling them about the future yeah. What does Moraine need to make sure happens or protect Rand from mm -hmm. or direct him to do? Because she's essentially trying to corral a potentially very dangerous mad animal. Yeah. And she's doing her best to guide him. He keeps running away. Mm -hmm. But I always thought the, particularly men's foretellings at least, were a very natural part of the storytelling. Okay. I think to like specifically talk about Min, I think part of my frustration with it is that one of her things is that she like foresees that she and Rand are going to be in love. Yeah. And she's like, I guess I better just hang out with Rand then. And they have had one conversation that we've seen on page and that was in Barillon because when she finds him in at the end of the great hunt, he's unconscious. Yeah. And then like he leaves and they never talk to each other. And she's like, I miss him so much. And I'm like, why? I don't have any, there's no, I just feel like possibly, I may be going out on a limb here, that maybe romantic relationships were not Robert Jordan's strong suit. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> that is a common opinion through a lot of different readers. Um, 
Jordan I mean, has a great way with words, and he builds these relationships, and they happen eventually, and they're really great once they do. But his ability to write the threads that are actually bringing these characters together romantically are mm-hmm. less than thorough, I would say. Yeah, that's, yeah, I remember There's when I read the eye of the world the first time and then like out of nowhere Nynaeve's like Lan you have to marry me I was like what yeah yeah <laughs> what did that even come from the the show to to do a quick aside to that the show does such a better job oh, yeah. just it's, it's... visually like you can see the actors portraying that growing romance a lot more yeah. than what we got out of the pages but even so the setup and the circumstances feel a lot more natural mm-hmm. than they did in the book and that's something I hope the show handles a lot more with all of the relationships. Yeah. Um, some of the things that they've done with some of the warders and some of the other uh, side characters and the romance on screen is already impressive. Mm-hmm. So I, I have confidence that yeah. Min and Rand's relationship will look a lot different on screen. I mean, and hopefully a yeah. lot more naturally developed. There are only a couple of relationships in the, the Wheel of Time, romantic relationships, that I felt were very well built Mm -hmm. initially most of them are great by the end sure well i i feel like robert jordan was like i need these people to be together romantically so there will be a prophecy (laughs) and they will be together and then i will build their relationship from there he was like i don't know what a meet cute is (laughs) these people are in love now (laughs) that's a great great comparison there don't know what a meet cute is (laughs) they're just gonna (laughs) Okay, they're in love. What happens next? (laughs) Yeah. Part of that probably comes from a lot of the way he very structurally built some of the character dynamics Mm -hmm. based on archetypes that he was pulling from mythology. Yeah. Um, He was like, based on this archetype, this is the person that this person falls in love with. Yeah. Because of who they are in mythology. And the biggest challenge there isn't even just picking one and figuring out how to get them together. It's that... Each character is a layer of like 13 mm-hmm. different archetypes that he's pulling from different personalities well, and history. Well, clearly <laughs> his. <laughs> men's, men's relationship uh, in falling in love with Rand, I think, is the weakest of Rand's romances. Um, there's going to be. Listen, we met Avienda in this book. You did. Uh, and I have exclusively been referring to her as Elaine's girlfriend in my head. <laughs> so that's, that's right. <laughs> see, I knew that. Everyone I said that to was like, yeah, I mean, you're right. Though. You're right. You're <laughs> right. You're like, right. I know you're right. technically they're both with Fran, but really they're with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they absolutely are. Um, that's so funny that you picked up on that because I don't know. I don't know so much picked up as like. Just ship them. <laughs> Just heard that from other people constantly on the internet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. and then once it started, I was like, yeah, sure. There'll be more to that. I mean, yeah, yeah there always the, is. The dynamics that he writes for the way that the romances or relationships exist once they're there mm-hmm. are pretty good and very interesting. Yeah. Um, with the Aiel, you're going to get to meet a lot of very interesting, more varied culturally different mm-hmm. types of relationships. Uh, so by the time you get to the fourth book um, and all the Aiel culture stuff, it's going to be really fun. Yeah, that's another thing I want in book four is the Aiel. If you can get through book four, you'll be 
much more well explored in the world. Yeah, it's really, been pretty, to put it. pretty limited to what the Two Rivers folk have been doing. Mm-hmm. So, Did you have a favorite scene from this book? Something that just kind of struck you as you were reading it and being like, wow, this is really cool. Really cool. I mean, I feel like the obvious answer is Matt blowing a hole in the wall with the fireworks. Nice. For like pure hilarity. Matt saying, I'm not a hero. And then one second later, swinging down out of a hayloft to fight people was extremely funny. (laughs) I'm so glad this this third book, like once you get here, like... I know Chris and I talk about it a lot. It's like, Matt is the best character. You just don't know for so long. Well, I think once he was freed of the dagger's influence, that was the time to get to know him. Because if you got to know him when he had the dagger, I think he would have been a little squirrelier. Yeah. Not as good, Wouldn't probably. Wouldn't have been as, as engaging of a character that people really wanted to invest in at that point. Mm-hmm. How about... Uh, talking about all the different relationships, what were there any character interactions or new characters introduced that you were excited about? Uh, like you know, Avienda, finally. Um, I mean, Morayil is always good. I liked seeing the, I call them the girl squad. It's Elaine, Nynaeve, and Egwene. Mm-hmm. Um, just them like going out and doing their own thing because they get to Tarval, back to Tarvalin. They go through the trial to become accepted, and then the Emerlin seat's like, by the way, I want you to hunt down the Black Aja for me, even though you're like babies. Yep. <laughs> uh, and they're like, wow, that's so much responsibility. Guess we're going to do that now. Uh, Big protagonist energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, literally, what uh, what else can we do? And so seeing them like desperately trying to figure out how to like, navigate the world of the Aes Sedai mm-hmm. where these women have been doing this for hundreds of years and like have built up this very I, I don't know exactly the best way to describe the like environment in Tar Valen. Not necessarily the political intrigue and like intrigue. The, yeah. the it's like the the structure of the bureaucracy yeah. and their It's a lot of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not necessarily good. No. <laughs> um and then they like find hints that the Black Aja, like, really obvious hints that the Black Aja is going to tear, and they're like, well, it can't be worse than being here. So they leave, and then, like, seeing them argue was, on the road. like, Neneve's and... number one mission is, like, I do not want to be taught by Isadai. I hate them all. Yeah. I want out <laughs> Any here. chance to get out of Tarvalon <laughs> was definitely high on Nynaeve's list. What did you think about, we got a little bit of, of the Aes Sedai and the tower uh, introduced in The Great Hunt, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit of the structure of their education and what the Aes Sedai, like, tiers are and their roles, these different object colors mm-hmm. and things. Um, what did you get out of the this book, uh, the expansion of all of those ideas? So we didn't... What did you learn? We didn't get that much more expansion um, because what we see is Egwene and Elaine go through the same thing Nynaeve did mm-hmm. in the previous book. Um, we meet Swan Sanche again, the Amarillin seat, um, and she's like, I have a secret quest for you, which she sort of does in The Great Hunt also. We do, um, we get a little bit more about the trial of acceptance or whatever, like the arches that mm-hmm. they go through. 
um, and how they're connected to the dreaming, um, because Egwene brings in a little Terangriol, Saangriol, whatever, that's also connected to the dreaming, and it, like, reverberates off of the arches and nearly gets Egwene trapped there. Yep. And then, like, there's obviously the rev- the quote-unquote reveal of the Black Aja, like, existing. I guess we talked about in the second book, because Leandrin was like, there are Black Aja. Yep. I'm super not one of them. <laughs> um, but, like, aside from those things, and then, like, you see the punishments they go through for, like, running away, basically. Mm-hmm. What? So we don't see a whole lot of what they are good at and what they are doing because we're focused on a very outsider perspective of sure. them and like the the babies and the tears of uh Aes Sedai, right because they're accepted mm-hmm. they're novices and then accepted i mean like, yeah i guess that's true you still don't get a lot of exposure to the rest of the yeah one thing Ajas we do yet. see in the prologue and sort of throughout the book is like people think of the Aes Sedai as this once powerful but kind of becoming a relevant institution mm-hmm. and like a lot of emphasis is placed on the power and the works of the Aes Sedai in the past because they they were able to create great things there's one there's one line that I had written down where like the child of light boss Pedra Neal is thinking about how Tarman Gaiden can't happen because he believes that the Aes Sedai of old locked away the Dark One so well. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that battle, last battle won't happen because he has so much like trust in what the Aes Sedai of old did. Which is so bizarre, given his current it's philosophy so and actions against <laughs> yeah, the modern I just thought Aes Sedai. that was so interesting. It's like once, once the Aes Sedai were just the women and it's been just the women for 3,000 years or whatever, it's been slowly... Like, every every single one of them says, like, we can't do what the Aes Sedai of old used to do. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is that Elaine's mother cuts off the Aes Sedai mm-hmm. as, instead of letting them be her advisor, advisors, whatever. Yeah. Because Elaine goes missing because <laughs> she was kidnapped by Leandrin in book two. <laughs> and then she has to, like... <laughs> walk home and it's been months and everybody's like where's the daughter heir of andor yeah i said die and they're like oh. <laughs> somewhere out there she's fine secret secret can't tell you classified yeah top. super no. super classified we can't tell you queen one of, of our... andor you don't have access to this information yeah and so that's like <laughs> the i said are estranging their strongest uh ally ally yeah yeah and the one of the things that is specifically mentioned and set up in the first book when you meet M- Morgaz and Elaine and the the sister that is her advisor, Elida mm-hmm. Doavrini, is that the Andor as a kingdom has been closely aligned with the Aes Sedai for almost the entire 3,000 years. Yeah. Even the country that it was before Andor um, under uh, High King uh, Arthur Hawkwing was closely aligned with the Aes Sedai for a good portion of his kingdom, his rule. Um, there were other great wars fought before the War of Power and the War of the uh, Shadow. Mm, that was a lot of wars. We'll talk about it. Um, but the 
you know, this over 3000 years, there's been a lot that's happened mm -hmm. and a lot of kin kingdoms have risen and fallen, Minethrin, Ardol, um, and that whole time, the Aes Sedai had a great amount of influence, even with mm -hmm. just a, a female organization, they were trying to hold humanity together. I mean, yeah. And they were still fighting the shadow. The shadow sent Trollocs, the Trolloc Wars. That's what it was, not the Shadow. <laughs> uh, the Trolloc Wars. There was actually a period, um, say a thousand years before these books are taking place, where the Trollocs just came down in waves mm -hmm. from the Blight. And humanity had to unite to push them back. And the Aes Sedai were central in coordinating all the diplomacy to keep all the kingdoms aligned for as long as they could. But there was another great fall and a fallout with the Aes Sedai mm -hmm. from Arthur Hawkwing, similar to Shadar Lagoth. Well, that was uh, and the, uh, why they do the oaths now. Yes. That's tied to Arthur Hawkwing. And that was supposed to instill trust in the populace uh -huh. that the Aes Sedai can't tell lies and they can't use the one power as a weapon against other people. You can trust them. Yeah, I really, I mean, I feel like they played themselves because everybody's like, yeah, the Aes Sedai can't tell lies, like magically, literally cannot tell a lie, but they sure learned how to not say stuff. Right. <laughs> like, or to let you like infer. Just assume. Yeah, exactly. They learned that like pretty, pretty quick. They're very wily, very clever at figuring all of that out. And being able to speak around their oaths. Yeah. So back to Matt. One of, one of the best scenes in the entire series is when Matt gets cured. Uh-huh. And he wanders his way down to the yard. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let's talk about that. So Matt's in Tarval, and he's just been healed from his magic binding to this dagger, which I'm sure won't come back. We definitely will never see that dagger again. It's in that box. It's in the basement at Tarvalin. We don't have to worry about totally it. Totally locked away. Totally safe. Matt has been, like, is barely able to walk. He's wandering around Tarval, and he's like, can I get out of here? I kind of want to leave. Like, but he's also starving, and he just wanders down to the, like, warder's field where the baby warders are training, and he sees Galad and Gowan, who are Elaine's brothers, sparring. And there's, like, this huge group of women watching the dudes spar, which is like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Not anything better to do, I guess. <laughs> and something happens. Matt ends up challenging both Gowan and Galad to a duel where he will fight them with a with a quarterstaff, and mm -hmm. they'll fight him with swords. And they're like, "We don't want to take your money." And and Matt's like, "Well, are you you scared?" <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> and then their teacher, I think, is the one who is actually like, "Listen, you got to learn this lesson." Uh, and Matt beats the crap out of them. Oh, yeah, he does. Uh, even though he's, like, just out of a sick bed, mm -hmm. you know, he gets his money from them and he just kind of wanders away again. Yep. <laughs> <sighs> it was plot this direction. Extremely <laughs> funny. It's like, wandered in, is there any plot here? No? <laughs> Some people to beat up and money to get? Yes. Okay, I'm going to do that real quick and then I'm going to wander away. So the the fun things happening there, you get to to come back around to Gawain and Gatlet again. Oh, I know. We haven't we haven't the, I had mean, a reason for them the, to we, be in the story a whole lot. We've yet. talked about this a lot of these characters. They show up briefly as like a reminder that they exist. Yeah. Like, hey, these people exist. We'll probably come back to them later, and then we move on. They're yeah. like, 
It's like Min being in this for 20 pages right. and Gallen and Galad showing up briefly. It's like, yeah, they're going to come so back. So what around. was your your impression of Gallad and Gawain this time? Um, they're still kind of blank slates, mm-hmm. honestly. They're like warders in training and they're older brothers. What did you learn about Matt in the story, the rest of the, the series? Aside, like you get a pretty good, like I said, he's in it like 25, 30% of the Yeah, the that's a good chunk. So I actually, another quote I wrote down was from the Amerlin seat. So Matt's sick. The Amerlin comes to see him. And she's like trying to get him to answer questions. And he's like, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes. No, ma'am. And he's like, just wants to leave. Right. Yep. He's like not answering her questions. And she's like, the Amerlin gave an exasperated sigh. You remind me of my uncle Huan. No one could ever pin him down. He liked to gamble too. And he'd much rather have fun than work. He died pulling children out of a burning house. He wouldn't stop going back as long as there was one left inside. Are you like him, Matt? Will you be there when the flames are high? He could not meet her eyes. I'm no hero. I do what I have to do, but I am no hero. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, look, that's Matt. Yep. <laughs> yep. I couldn't fully express why, from the get-go, he became my favorite character. I like sassy characters. I mm-hmm. like witty characters. He struggled with the dagger and that became such an issue for him for so long before his story really kicked off but it was really him walking in and kicking butt with a quarter staff against these two boys who have literally been raised by the sword to become like noble leaders for the kingdom of Ondor Mm -hmm. and great swordsmen of them you know at their own skills and Matt just saunters in Womps them mm-hmm. and then starts to like almost immediately come into his character that he's going to be like building from the ground up. He's after the coins. They start talking about the dice rolling in his head and yes. the visions and memories he starts to get. Yes. So that's one of the things that happens when he is healed from his connection to the dagger is that he starts to speak in. The old tongue. The old tongue. Okay, I wasn't sure if it had like a name or if no, it was just like it's just generic called the old tongue. fantasy old tongue. I understand. Um, and he's like speaking like he is commanding an army of Manetherin, basically. Mm-hmm. And all the Aes Sedai who are healing him are like, I'm sure that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> totally normal. We don't have to worry about that. That won't come back later. <laughs> nah. It was just a one-off thing Jordan was trying. He got over it. Never came back again. <laughs> Yeah, put, got to put it on the page, but then we can forget about mm-hmm, it. Moving mm-hmm. on. But the the line in the quote, the story that, that Swan shares, that's one of the most important things about his character and why he continues through the very last battle mm-hmm. to be, in my opinion, still one of the, like, I like him more than any other character in the series yeah. just because of his arc that he goes through the struggles that he faces the comedy that he brings to every Mm -hmm. situation his struggle to just go and live a normal adventurous but Mm -hmm. you know normal life away from all the dangers that he keeps getting pulled into but he keeps turning around yes there is so when he leaves tarvalin finally he's given a letter from elaine to take to her mother Mm mm-hmm and he takes it to Camelin and he 
gives Morghese the letter. But before that happens, he like accidentally overhears Morghese's new advisor planning to murder Elaine and Egwene and Nynaeve. Lord Robin. Yeah. Or whatever it is. And there's a point where Matt is the only person who knows or that. Gabriel? Lord Gabriel? I don't remember what his name was. There were so many names. And it doesn't matter because it's not his real name because he's one of the Forsaken, right? Like, Did you pick up on that? <laughs> you know, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But the, it's the like, Matt's the only person who knows that. So he's the only person who has even the slightest chance of doing anything about it. Yep. But he's also the only person who would hold himself accountable to it. So he's like... He looks at that situation, he's immediately, he's, he says, I have to go after them and I have to, to warn them. And then after that, I'll leave and never talk to anybody right. again and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. But, but Deliver a message of, and then out. <laughs> right. That kind of character where it's like, he's not going to like live with himself keeping something like that where he could do something. Yeah. And then not do it. Like... He's going to make the choice because he, like, clearly has a very strong sense of it's not right to go murder people. Mm -hmm. And it's not right for you to go plan to murder my friend's friend, who yep. I don't even really know that well. But, like, I'm not going to let you go out there and murder her. Now it's you v. me, dude. Like, yeah. we're in a race. You don't know it, but I'm going to beat you. I got a stick. <laughs> yeah. And some dice. <laughs> and some dice. Um... <laughs> So the other thing that happens in this book is that there are suddenly over the winter that there's like every single kingdom has a brand new advisor or lord on the lordly council. Shocking. And it was like, it did not take long. Okay. Okay. It's like revealed later that they're the Forsaken. Yeah. And it did not take very long for the Forsaken to just come up and just sort of ingratiate themselves into the higher power structures of all of these countries yep. and they're just like it's very obvious that the forsaken are turning these countries toward each other to war yeah where it's like every every new thing that you hear about these countries doing it's like oh well brand new lord salmon or whatever he says that you know we should fight these other people or like wh whatever all their other names are it's like obviously they are ready to cut the world up into little pieces to yeah. rule slash fight over. So So at the end of the Eye of the World, the one of the uh Quindilar mm -hmm. seals is broken. Yes. So the boar that has the dark one sealed up had also trapped behind it thirteen of the chosen, the greatest Aes Sedai of the Age of Legends. Mm -hmm. That had turned to the dark side. Mm-hmm. Now they're slowly becoming free. Mm -hmm. So in the Great Hunt, you meet Selene. Mm -hmm. You've met Balzaman mm -hmm. a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, you met Agenor and Balthamel mm -hmm. at the Eye of the World. They were killed off really quickly. Yeah. Um, you also, in the Dragon Reborn, now meet Samael. Uh, yeah. And Bilal. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I don't think, I don't remember if he was called Robin, uh, but the, Wh the, the Morgaz's lover. Advisor, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's exactly 
right. You're now seeing all of these uh, forsaken in positions of power, and it's been less than a year. Yeah. So it's they still have all the knowledge and secrets of the Age of Legends. Mm-hmm. They're still who they were when they were sealed 3,000 years ago. Yeah. So they've got all kinds of secret one power abilities. They've mm-hmm. got all the knowledge and insight and political familiarity and machinations. They can, you know, they know how to play the game of houses. Yeah. So they're trying to sow chaos. They're trying to put themselves in positions of power to stop Rand, to stop any resistance to the the overall goal of the Dark One. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this being the third book and like kind of the way that the Forsaken are introduced, it's, you know, this kind of pyramid. Mm-hmm. You're slowly expanding out the, the range of the story and the complexity of things. Um, I liked that about the Dragon Reborn, in particular, the story uh, just of this book is just how many more little layers you get. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, Matt runs into Tom mm-hmm. uh, as he's going on his journey. So we pull Tom back into the story mm-hmm. and he's always fun. Um, there is uh Celine slash Lanfear is in this book. Mm-hmm. Just little snippets of her wandering around Harvalin doing mm-hmm. who knows what. So that's just happening in the background. Uh, she does briefly appear to tempt Matt to join the dark side. Mm-hmm. Slash she talks to side. Perrin as well when he's in the wolf dream. Probably. I don't I... Or maybe it was just Matt. I think Perrin just overhears her conversation. That's right. I think so. One of the things that happens while Perrin is wandering around in the dreams is he like encounters, I think... Lanfear. And then the book description of her being like, you can't be here, go away, makes it sound like she turns a TV off, just like the way it's described as like the screen going black and then there's a line down the middle of it and then it blinks out. Yeah. And I was like, did this bitch just change the channel? (laughs) Are you kidding me? The Forsaken also may have access to Stranger Tarangriol from the Age of Legends. <laughs> this supports my theory that somewhere out there is a Tarangriol that is a Nokia phone. <laughs> Still works. <laughs> Indestructible. It's made of, it's made of Quindular. <sighs> and mm. part of the, I wonder... If part of the reason it's so easy for the Forsaken, I mean, aside from the fact that they're obviously extremely old and extremely powerful, is that none of these other countries have an Aes Sedai as their advisor anymore. Right. Yes. That's like Andor was the last one and they just kicked out their Aes Sedai. And now suddenly there's Forsaken. That is definitely intentional, like pretty, pretty pointed. I'm thinking... That some of the other countries that are talked about as the the books continue, the borderlands in particular are very dedicated to the Aes Sedai yeah. because they understand. The well, stakes they deal with the Trollocs all, all the, the time, time and the blight and the and their their cultures also tend to be very much uh, you know honor bound, yeah. duty bound. They keep their oaths, mm-hmm. um, and they will continue to have Aes Sedai advisors that get talked about. And and when you beat more of the leaders, uh, there'll be advisors there. But Tyr specifically does not mm-hmm. even allow channeling in their kingdom. Yeah. 
So there's no Aes Sedai there, at least not openly. Mm-hmm. Definitely no advisor. Uh, Alien uh, specifically like gets rid of their advisors. And uh, Morgaz mm-hmm. sent Elida away. They had a little falling out. Camelin's just a big something. Yep. Something's happening there. Yep. It's bad. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Camelin and, and Ondor, you know, they're they're Britain. They're they're the Britain mm-hmm. archetype. They're the seat of, um, you know, King Arthur's kingdom, Camelot, Camelin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that very much is intentional to have that like in the middle of the Randland map, essentially, and why Elaine and Galad and Gawain and Morgaz all have such a big part to play mm-hmm. in the story. And why we keep coming back to them is just kind of reliant on the Arthurian mythos that is a foundational element of the overall story. Um, so them being exposed to the Forsaken, particularly this early, is going to have some serious consequences in book mm. four. Mm. And mm. you'll still be dealing with them by book seven. I I mean, I'm surprised you're not <laughs> dealing with them the whole time. <laughs> Why would you get rid of them? De- they, Surely they like, the Dark One has I'm some just... more like under his couch cushions he can dig up. Under his couch cushions. Just, just one more forsaken. Just hold on, hold on. I think I've got a spare forsaken somewhere. Let me just. It's funny you mention that because you're not too far off. Hey. You're really not. Oh my gosh. How about we talked about relationships earlier? One uh-huh. of the ones that I wanted to ask about and and get your your first impressions of in particular is Fail. Well, so Robert Jordan can't. Right, romance. Yep. Uh, he also does this thing with his female characters where he makes them like, I don't want to say bullies necessarily. Oh, no. <laughs> they're, they're bullies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not just me. Egwene and Neneve through the entire series and Elaine to a slightly minor extent. Yeah. But Elaine and Neneve in particular. I mean, Egwene and Neneve. Yeah. Bullies. So it's kind of funny <laughs> because it means that like after a certain amount of bullying, the men are like, I guess I'm in love now. <laughs> and so I guess every male character Robert Jordan writes is like, I would like her to step on me, actually. Like, that's their type. Yeah. Um. So she is fail specifically. How are you supposed to say her name? I've been saying. I fail. say fail. Fail. Doesn't he have like a pronunciation? There's a pronunciation guide in the back. I'll check that. I should check that earlier. Because, like, I ask to get your opinion first. Because, of course, like in popular fandom she's not one of the most favorite characters mm, well her name isn't in here so I wonder if uh, they do it might Zareen be under zarina with a z i believe zarina i think that's her first that's name zarine zarine yeah how does the well nope nope she does not get a mention in the glossary that's interesting. Well, Normally, I wonder if she's in like each new nice character gets in. Yeah, she has. Yeah, it seems weird. Um, so, fail, fail is it's one of those things that just kind of like she does initially strike me as just a naive kind of bully. Mm-hmm. 
but like i i mean that's fine <laughs> she is specifically doing she's like a young woman who is out hunting for the horn of valir on her own mm -hmm. um which speaks to a certain amount of undue confidence probably <laughs> um in herself because she's you know has an, and and one of her things is she has no idea what she's gotten herself into she like sees she has a great main character radar she like pings <laughs> immediately she's like oh moraine and lan and this guy with yellow eyes and a and an ogier traveling together i'm gonna follow that that yeah. goes somewhere interesting yeah. and then like moraine's like okay i can't stop you but like no one tell her anything, and uh, if you do, you'll be stuck with us forever. And then Fail finds out too much, and Moraine's like, well, now you're in it, kid. You could have left at any time, but now you can't. You're with us. Yeah. And Fail, there's like a line she has where she's like, what kind of story did I get myself into? Like, literally, she says that, and Perrin's like, you had the chance but now your thread in the pattern is woven in with ours. Mm -hmm. um, to me, her attitude, initial attitude, very much reminds me of Matt from the very mm -hmm. beginning, where or at least Matt and Rand particularly are talking about the stories they've read in the yeah. adventures of Jane Farstrider or, or very much. the, the folktales they've heard. You know, They're dreaming of the adventures that they could have. Yeah. And of course, the moment they're out of the two rivers... They realize adventure is terrible and life-threatening. And Fayol finds Nobody. herself kind of in the same thing. She's yeah. clearly made her way all the way down to Ilian for the Great Hunt. Mm -hmm. um, and she's kind of, you know, aligned herself with other hunters to, mm -hmm. to find you know, some safety in, in that. But she's very young. She's like 16. Mm -hmm. um, and... She's seeking out the adventure. She's got yeah. some kind of courage and some kind of of, of need to yeah. explore and define. And of course, like you said, I love the main character radar. <laughs> yeah, like, ah, that's gonna go somewhere. She's like, oh, that person has blue hair. <laughs> yes, ding, anime protagonist. Um, but there is. I have heard that one of the things that happens to fail frequently is that she gets kidnapped slash trapped and has to be rescued and that is like a lot of what Perrin does yep. over the next few books and that's even how this book ends is she gets caught in like a dream trap set by the black aja yeah and Perrin has to jump in after her uh using his cool wolf brother dream stuff yeah. um which like on one hand i'm glad that fail was there because otherwise Perrin might not have done that Mm-hmm. He would have spent the next two books going, I'll just not. Not going to go dream. Not going to go. No. I'm just going to time, like, chain myself to a rock in one of these dream rooms and not move. And yep. that's going to nope. be my move for the next two books. But that'll be safe. That'll be safe. Bless his heart. <laughs> um, there is one thing, which is a comment I had specifically about this book. Which is, do you think Robert Jordan knows that women can get places and do things without being kidnapped? Because... Well, Elaine and Neneve and Egwene are going places. They get kidnapped. The later. Those, later. <laughs> they get kidnapped by those bandits. Okay, they start... 
the middle of the great hunt they get kidnapped right yeah. In, in the Dragon Reborn, they get kidnapped by those bandits. Mm-hmm. And then when they're in tear, they get captured by the Black Aja. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fail gets kidnapped. Uh, I think that was... A, hold on. I feel like I wrote this I, down. It is It is absolutely fair to call that out. And, and it will be fair in the next book and the book after uh-huh, that. And, uh-huh. the book after and that. like, I get it. It is... That is very much... And I think we talked about this in one of the earlier books the great hunt or something um but the that goes back again to like some of the classical medieval romance Mm -hmm. archetypes that he's pulling from uh particularly again arthurian tales yeah where the damsel has been absconded by some other lord Mm -hmm. the noble gallant you know knight is going to go and rescue his lady love it's great avienda goes in and rescues elaine (laughs) It's so fun. I, I love it. I love it. Um, I will say that it's not only the ladies that will be kidnapped, um, and and there yeah, will be. Yeah, I was trying to think. Some changes on I, that, but it really is heavy on the ladies get repeatedly. Yeah. Caught repeatedly. up in things that they can't. Yeah. I don't rag on it too harshly as like a bad use of the trope. It sometimes is noticeable, and yeah. it's a little heavy. Um, or, well, or repetitive in some places, but... That is another part of the difficulty with such a long series where so much happens. Yeah. Is that by necessity, some things are going to have to happen several times. Yeah. Or, like, you just need to reuse those things. You, you know, you can't the, completely do a completely new thing every time. Yeah. Like, and the way that they're caught up is very unique pretty much every time. Um and you learn something else about other people that are mm. after them. And like the whole point that they keep getting kidnapped and, and captured and run off with is is because the, the baddies are trying to keep them out of the game. Mm-hmm. They're they're pawns or bishops funny. or knights in this this great yeah. game of, of light versus dark. And the women have an incredibly important role to play. Mm-hmm. And if you can take even one of them out. So many other dominoes are going to fall. Yeah. Um, again, particularly, and I'll repeat this for the audience. I think I've said it in both the previous books. Matt may be my favorite character, but Egwene has the best story. Mm-hmm. At any moment, if they had successfully captured her and kept her out of the game. Yeah. The way this particular story is written and foretold and all this jazz, the world would fall apart. Mm-hmm. It truly would. One of the best kidnappings is eventually going to be kind of a reversal, mm. and it's going to involve Nanive uh, and her like middle arc. Mm. Uh, I can't remember if that's in the fifth or sixth book. Wow, does she kidnap Lan and make him marry her? <laughs> oh! <laughs> that was not Crushed the. It. That was not the story I was thinking of, but yes, (laughs) essentially, that is also a thing that happens. (sighs) Mm. it was fun. I mean, we didn't really see Lan in this. Well, we did. You do, but he doesn't have a lot. He doesn't have a lot doing. But like, it's so funny that Nynaeve names her horse like Warder. She Mm -hmm. names it Gaideen. Gaideen. Yep. (laughs) And Egwene's like. She thinks she's being subtle, but no. she's not subtle. <laughs> also, the... like, I just had this idea where you did, like, an office-style show for The Wheel of Time 
where they're like doing a travel log and then occasionally they step aside and talk about what's what the other characters are doing oh, and just yeah. the image of Egwene staring at the camera like dead-eyed while Nynaeve is like in the background petting her horse telling him how obedient he is unlike some other men <laughs> that actually would be a really funny like little YouTube series to do that's cute um, that's free for the Wheel of Time actors. Everybody else owes me money. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, so that actually raises an interesting okay. <laughs> question about the dynamic between Egwene, Nynaeve, and Elaine. What did you think about their, their developing friendships? Um, yeah, so seeing them do their like little travelogue adventure together, I was so interested at the end of eye of the world to see like a hint of Egwene and Nynaeve being closer because there's like this moment where Egwene comforts Nynaeve after Lan has like rejected her or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like they were on more equal footing than they had been in the two rivers based on that. Um, and then like the next two books, it's been very much like Nynaeve thinks of herself as the wisdom still and is the one like taking charge and making decisions and Egwene is pushing it back against that very strongly because she's like we're not in the two rivers anymore nope. we are technically the same rank like yep. we're both accepted Once, now like in in book two as Nanive gets raised to accepted status like immediately mm -hmm. she doesn't even have to be a novice because she's yep. already got the gift mm -hmm. she's got the talent they recognize how powerful she is she still needs training they can't just make her an Aes Sedai that would be ridiculous but they already put her in this position of authority even within the structure mm -hmm. of the Aes Sedai and Egwene and Elaine have to be novices and in the the normal way of things people would be novices for six to 20 years mm -hmm. depending on how quickly you learn things and this end of the world business ain't got time for that <laughs> i know <laughs> so Egwene and elaine becoming accepted in this book now challenges nanive's perception of her own responsibilities yeah. and and authority because she's been raging against the same thing Against the Aes Sedai. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want people telling her what to do, but she's perfectly happy to turn around and tell everybody else what to do. Correct. Correct. And I, I, while Jordan couldn't necessarily write the introductory meet-cute romances very well, uh -huh. and most of the women in the story will have some range of superiority mm -hmm. and bullying against mm -hmm. all these other personalities. When I was a teenage boy reading these stories, that didn't make the characters feel awkward to me. That made them feel no. like they were pushing against things that they couldn't control and that they were pushing against people trying to tell them constantly mm -hmm. what to do. And they were wrapped up and pulled in different directions in this adventure and all these dangers and all these questions that they can't find answers for on their own they need help they know they do mm -hmm. all of them do but a lot of times i feel like the characters are written fairly reasonably well in that they all have foibles that prevent them from being able to communicate well 
Yes. <laughs> that coming down to being a bullying nature for a lot of the women, particularly. Yeah, I don't. Kind of gets repetitive. Yeah, I don't. Know but I think that falls back to the Aes Sedai personality in general. Yeah, and and I don't feel like bullying is quite the right word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could think of the word that I want, but there is like in this book, I think. Also, like, specifically, uh, when Moraine is, like, traveling with Perrin and um, Loyal, right? And they're leaving and they're chasing Rand as he's going on his way to Tyr. Mm-hmm. And Perrin has been, like, questioning her decisions and being like, well, why are we doing this? Like, explain it to me. Or what if we did something else instead? And there's this moment where they're on the road where Perrin notices that Moraine has been getting him to do, like, little chores for her. And just subtly manipulating him to do what she wants in, like, small things so that it is easier for her later to make him do big things. And he notices it and he's like, I can't make myself (laughs) stop. (laughs) How does she do that? (laughs) Which I thought was... Uh, hilarious but if mm-hmm. it was happening to me it would be extremely frustrating mm-hmm. i really like that that awareness and acknowledgement within the story and again that that encounter that expression within the work itself is telling you something about the Aes Sedai nature as a mm-hmm. whole it's telling you something about Perrin now yeah coming into his own and you know, we talked about him being one of the more responsible characters. We talked about Matt never running away from an issue. Perrin certainly is not going mm-hmm. to. Um, and Moraine is just very good at this. She is. <laughs> yeah. And it it to me, it, it reinforces the fact that Moraine is one of the few Aes Sedai, even though that she was involved in the the prophecy at the beginning and like you know present at the the foretelling of the dragon being reborn and all this other stuff like the way her personality is expressed here is just continually showing that of all the Aes Sedai Moraine is the one who can deal with these extremely powerful yeah very naive people mm-hmm that well, may be the only thing that saves the world. And she has a different way of dealing with all of them. She doesn't yeah. deal with Rand and Perrin the same. No. Um, and something that just occurred to me as you were talking is that the the Moraine and like the Aes Sedai being in charge and wanting to not have people question them, basically, reminds me a lot of how Nynaeve was as the wisdom because Mm -hmm. for her and i only thought of this because i re-listened to the other episodes um where Nynaeve react her reaction to being questioned is to like lash out at people and like part of that is because she has such a huge responsibility she's responsible for everyone in the two rivers and for the crops and for healing people and that's just one woman in one little town and then you consider the Aes Sedai who consider themselves responsible for the safety of the entire world and yeah. like how frustrating or heavy it must be to like have to think about 
everyone and everything. And then there's this peasant in front of you <laughs> telling you to work harder. Questioning me? <laughs> like, excuse me? Yep. Yeah. There's a, a great deal of layers to the different ways characters respond to the responsibilities that they have. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big elements that Jordan explores thoroughly with almost every character is how do they work under pressure? How do they work under the weight of knowledge and duty mm -hmm. that they have? Lon starts talking about that in the very first oh, book yeah. and reinforcing that with Rand and the boys. And that duty is heavier than a mountain, death lighter than a feather. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually an older saying that Jordan pulled into the series. And it's going to be one of the key philosophies through the very end um, for just about every character. Because yeah. the story is about the end of the world. Everybody's yeah. life is on the line. Yeah. And the people who have to do something about it. <laughs> what do you do with the knowledge you're given and the time you have? Kick Gandalf. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to talk about the end of the book. Mm -hmm. So they all make it to Tyr. Uh, oh, the other thing that happens for Perrin, I get sidetracked here momentarily, is he gets his blacksmithing skills re-upped, mm -hmm. um, and he gets gifted a hammer, so he gets to stare at his hammer and his axe. I understand these metaphors because I listened to your uh, Reinventing the Wheel of Time <laughs> episode with Rebecca. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I mean, just in a general sense, that's like, he hates the axe, but he recognizes the usefulness of it and then he loves the hammer but knows that it's not always time to build yeah to make things so that's we're just going to have like a physical representation of his struggle his inner struggle right. here in these two items yeah that was something i was disappointed in the show not really starting off with very well mm. um he picks up an axe in the last episode yeah um for like one second. For one second, yeah. And the way that they changed the show to kind of externalize mm -hmm. his struggle. For better kinda, or for Kind of rough. Kind of rough. Um, but it, he gets this respite when they get to tear to go yeah. and just work and be the blacksmith that he's always thought he was going to be. And I love that. I love those moments with each of these characters where they get to revisit what might have been yeah and and the hammer and the axe are going to be and you're going to get to explore that with perrin for books and mm -hmm. books and pages and pages mm -hmm. yeah um he will eventually have my third favorite scene <laughs> uh revolving around that particular question wow i don't rank scenes in books oh there's and clearly i'm missing out here. This series has so many options. The the whomping of Matt uh, oh, yeah. against well, that Gawain. That's definitely a top five good easy. Good times. Everybody loves a, a couple of stuck up prancy boys getting their ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> by a sick farmer with a stick. Amazing. So the, got the reach. Um, they anyway, get to the Stone the, of Tear. So they're at the Stone of Tear. Rand is there because <laughs> Rand 
we haven't even talked about the dreaming. Rand, on his little journey through the countries where he's, like, being chased and stuff, he's, his, like, dreams have been leaking and affecting the world around him, and that's sort of, like, the path Moraine is following to track him down. Um, and so, like, wherever he goes, things change just based on what he's been dreaming. And he's also been dreaming about the sword, Kalendor, that is not a sword. And then when he gets there, and it's like the, you know, connection of all the elements, we've all been drawn to this one room and this <laughs> fortress, even though we took 600 pages and four different paths to get here. It's like Matt skids in at the end and he's like, you guys are here too? What? <laughs> I thought I left you guys behind. The Spider-Man meme? Yeah, yeah exactly. What? <laughs> um, so he fights Bilal and takes Kalendor and then chases Baal Zaman, mm-hmm. who he has thought was the Dark One for two books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does he successfully kill Baal Zaman at the end of this? I don't feel like he does. It doesn't feel dramatic enough. I it was, doesn't? I was trying to, like, read the last bit before you came over to, like, review. Because I was like, does that, did that happen? Is that real? Um, because, like, the body just fades away or whatever. Yeah. So it kind of feels like that wasn't uh It kind of feels like someone did, like, an Oogie Boogie shadow puppet scare to Rand. Maybe. So we'll see. He's being very... Daniel's being very coy about this. <laughs> I can just Google it, Daniel. <laughs> you can. You can. You absolutely can do that yourself. I uh, okay, am going to okay, reinforce okay. Raffo. Yeah, read and find whatever. out. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> um, and it... <laughs> One of the things that, that I do want to call out, though, um, Rand is fighting Bilal, but uh-huh. he does not kill Bilal. Yes. Moraine does. Moraine does. Moraine Comes in and bale fires him in the face. What did you learn about bale fire? It's very bright. Mm-hmm. And forbidden. And forbidden. <laughs> and kills forsaken. Kills forsaken. Super good. Moraine over here just being like, ah, forbidden weaves. Ah, you got to use what you got to use. Yeah. Well, she like found it in a book somewhere. <laughs> she was like, I know this knowledge is technically <laughs> forbidden. However, consider I have already seen three Forsaken this year. <laughs> not, not holding back. Yeah. So I'm just going to take that. That's for me for later. So this is one of the f- first times that you see something truly forgotten being brought back again. Hmm. Um, which, again, with the, the greater mythology and the arc of the story. And, you know, we talked about the 3,000 years of history and the, the waning of the Aes Sedai's powers mm-hmm. and knowledge and everything being lost. We're essentially in this, like, two-year climactic period where everything has to be rapid. Daniel, it's been one year in the story already. I know. Um, Jesus. You got nine more books to find out what happens in year two. Um, God. <laughs> uh, I'm going to think fondly of that three-month time skip in Great Hunt. I can just tell. It's. I think it's a little more than two years, but it's like two and a half or something. But the that always catches everybody off guard because yeah. so much happens, and the way mm-hmm. that it, it it rolls out, it just feels like it's naturally longer. But these kids are still kids. Yeah, they just they're in war. 
just yeah. like we would send people off to Vietnam, World War II. Teenagers become hardened adults very quickly under stress. Yeah. Moraine has found this secret knowledge and uses it, and they don't really go into it in this book, but they'll they'll keep talking about it because Balefire is going to have an important place as a, mm -hmm. a spell, as a weave, um, and there's going to be consequences to this forbidden knowledge, of course. What? Consequences for my actions? For your actions. Now. Um, I also liked this, the, this, this ending, I think, is the best of the first three books, mm. in my opinion. Um, the Great Hunt ended with a great big splash mm -hmm. and the, the cool battle between Balsamon and Rand in the skies. Mm -hmm. And you got the Sanchen and the White Cloaks all fighting and everything. And that's cool. But even as I was reading that, it was still just as confusing as the ending of the first book. Yeah. This ending actually made a whole lot more sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, some of the the results were a little confusing. Like, is Balsamon really dead? But I was already used to that from the first two books. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and like some of the arrivals and the the dreaming yep. information that you get is a little fuzzy but i really like the fact that you finally get to the stone mm -hmm. and Rand draws the sword mm -hmm. that it's not a sword mm -hmm. what do you think about that it's a glowing light thing yeah it's like a crystalline sword crystal blade shaped yeah. like a sword i admit once again, I have to recommend Daniel's podcast, Reinventing the Wheel of Time, so that you can get such hot takes as Rand pulls the sword from the stone, <laughs> which I did not connect dots. Mm -hmm. So that's a reference to King Arthur, for those who are wondering. <laughs> That was just a really fun revelation, how it's set up and how it was played out yeah. so uniquely for this world and this story. Yeah. And all the other illusions, Galad and Gawain. And then suddenly you've got King Arthur mm -hmm. drawing the sword from the stone, just like I watched in the Disney movie a hundred yeah. times. And yeah. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Aiel. Yeah, the Aiel there. Climbing. The uh -huh. freaking stone that has never fallen in 3,000 years. because the Aiel didn't need anything from in there. Nope. <laughs> if you'd had like a branch of a Vendasora or whatever in there, they'd have been in there immediately. Oh, man. They'd have raised it to the ground. <laughs> Impenetrable fortress. Just till the Aiel get there. And Matt. And Matt. <laughs> yeah. I love that Matt is climbing up to find a place to put the fireworks. He's like, ah, what's up? This is some Aiel up too. here. Uh, they're not guys, bothering me. I'm not going to bother them. What are you cool? guys doing? We all going in there? <laughs> anyway. Um, so is this book called The Dragon Reborn because Rand declares himself the Dragon Reborn at the end? So yes. the whole, wow, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think there could have been a different name for this book. What I really Probably. wanted out of like... If I was going to pick a title for this book, it would be something about the dreaming mm. and like the the world of dreams and the dreamers and the dragon's dreams, right? Yeah, because you get there's, a lot more of that this time so around. There's so much because like Bran's dreams are affecting the world. Egwene learns her dreamwalking stuff. Perrin learns his wolf brother dreamwalking stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's part of their final battle and part of just like their growth and it feels like a much bigger 
part of this book mm-hmm. than I mean, I understand because Rand is the main character and like his arc is the most important one because he is the main character. Right. And I just think it would have been cooler. <laughs> it could have been. And it's, again, looking back at the way the, the overall shape of the story goes, um, and even with some of the things that Harriet has talked about and uh, she and Brandon have worked out and the showrunner for the TV show, they specifically met with Harriet and Team Jordan, some mm-hmm. of the assistants that helped him with, with the books, they specifically asked, okay, if he had gotten to go back and edit again mm. these first few books, would he have changed anything? Were there things that he regretted setting up or would he have changed You know, after he got to later books? And the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. So the TV show is definitely implementing some of these changes to restructure the focus and the order of events yeah. To better align with an ending. But for anybody that's ever attempted to write a story, mm-hmm. even if you know the ending, like Jordan did, the journey drastically changes by the end. Oh, your yeah. character focus and your your character development changes who the characters were at the beginning. And it's a massive struggle internally to figure out, is there value in making those changes? Or are those inherent flaws even in your own writing and characterization important to the story that you tell later yeah and i'm and i mean i think you could get caught very easily in a i'm waiting till i've written everything and then i'll go back and make sure it's all perfect sort of trap oh yeah and often the best thing to do is to put what you have out there and say that's the best that i could do right now yeah and like like if Jordan had waited until he had written every single book to it publish the first written. one, it never would have been written. Because he would have passed away. He first. would have died. And then like, how do you market like, hey, my dead husband's 11 unfinished books out of like a 14 book yeah. series. How do you sell that to somebody? Yep. Like, or how do you convince someone to to pick that up and carry the torch on to the end? Right. Like, so, like, yes, there are obviously things we would all go back in time and change, <laughs> right? Right. Not surprised. But, you know, at some point you have to accept that, like, writers and creators of media are people. and They do what they can. They do what they can. They it, do the best they can with what they have at the time. And, like, I'm sure Jordan at book 11 was looking back at book one and going, whoo, <laughs> I hope nobody else reads that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just start on book four. It's take, fine. Take my name off of that one. Um, but ultimately, I like the fact that the book is titled The Dragon Reborn. Um, it easily could have also been titled The Great Hunt because The Great Hunt is book two and it is about chasing down the Horn of Valir. But The Great Hunt starts in this book because this is when the hunters for the horn are gathering in Ilian. <laughs> So that, that threw me off so hard when I first read this book in particular, because that that's kind of in the first like half of the book. Yeah. And I'm just like, didn't so we do this already? Book two is the great hunt, but now we're doing the great hunt again. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it was a little weird to have <laughs> Fail introduced and she's like, I'm hunting for the Horn of Valir. And everyone else is like, don't make eye contact. <laughs> don't tell her you know where the Horn of Valir is. Lock safe in the bottom of Tarvalon. Yeah. But ultimately, like, the title of this book is telling you what happens at the end. And I kind of like that literary poetry. It is three. The order of three. Rule of three. Mm -hmm. The third thing. (laughs) It's the third thing, Daniel. 
in so many stories, uh, particularly like folk tales and fables. Oh yeah. There are, there are three challenges. Mm-hmm. You're asked three questions. There are three oracles or mm-hmm. furies or whoever. And so these first three books all having a similar quest structure mm-hmm. and a similar final battle with Baalzaman mm-hmm. and a similar question of is he or is he ain't dead? <laughs> like what's going on here? <laughs> is he is or is he ain't? <laughs> um, they all kind of rhyme mm-hmm. to me. They they do have a very similar feel and yeah. like structure, I would say. And this comes from the heavier reliance on the first part of this overall story on the classic mm-hmm. Arthurian tropes and the quests. Book four is going to break away from that pretty good. Yeah. Um, and particularly book five and six, which are some of the thickest. They're the mm-hmm. longest uh, parts of the story. They get into a lot more complexity of philosophy with the different powers and the struggle of the different forsaken against each other, the light and the dark, um, a lot more of the uh, Eastern Dharma mm-hmm. philosophy, and they move a, l- a little bit further away from the Western European f- fantasy. Cool. But I like Rand has specifically spent this book in the few pages that you get him moving towards acknowledging for the first time. He's going where he wants to go. That's, yeah. He dealt with everything at Fall May mm-hmm. and got the wound. Yeah. In his side, which is another, um, both a Arthurian Fisher King wound mm-hmm. uh, that'll play up a little bit more in the next few books, and also like the Christ-like yeah. uh, wound. That is, I hadn't thought of that, but rereading like the near end of this book, um, like the first two books, other people believe come to believe that Rand is the Dragon Reborn, mm-hmm. and then this one is Rand's journey to finally accepting it about himself yeah so like everybody else was declaring him the dragon at the end of the second book but he was like okay but i know that there have been false dragons yeah and i know that i am a convenient pawn to be used so he's pretty self-aware if this is real then i need like full evidence of this and the best way to do that is going to be going to tear and yoinking that sword <laughs> yoinking that sword yes <laughs> well, let's go see <laughs> and he gets his answer yeah the stone that has never fallen falls and the sword that cannot be touched is touched mm-hmm. and he can no longer deny himself mm-hmm. and the people of tear absolutely cannot deny him and so that's going to be where the next book starts off is the... Oh, two months later, he's... Uh... I'm sorry, every other book has been like one month later. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> the But he'll, he'll have that kind of final acknowledgement and presentation to the public. Mm. Uh, in the first ending, the first ending in The Eye of the World, he appears in a visage over the soldiers fighting in Tarwin's Gap. At the ending of The Great Hunt, he appears in a visage... Mm-hmm. Over That's the right. Sanchin and the white white cloaks, he's just covering all his bases. <laughs> in, the, in the Dragon Reborn, at the end, he's there. Yeah, there's magic and there's lightning in the halls and there's destruction and everything, but he is physically present and remains there for at mm-hmm. least enough time for his acknowledgement to set in and acceptance that he's the Dragon Reborn, and then for the leadership of Tear. To deal with the 
The yeah. thing that has never happened in 3,000 years. Yeah. They're like, the thing that was prophesied to happen for 3,000 years, that's like the first sign of the coming of Jesus Christ happened? Yep. In our town where it's been prophesied <laughs> to happen? The apocalypse is upon you. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Well. So that gets very real for everyone. Yeah. Hmm. And I mean, like I said earlier, it's like, I know that book four branches out and starts doing a different thing. Yeah. So I am eventually interested in picking that up. Yeah. Seeing where it goes. I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. It was definitely one of my favorite stories just because I, I love the Aiel. Mm-hmm. Every, yeah. every yeah. little, little quirk and trope that Jordan has researched and pulled in to create this culture of nomads in a desert. He's pulled from Native American cultures. He's pulled from many Eastern cultures, Asian cultures, and creates this really cool, you know, it makes no sense that they're kind of, they're still very ginger and blonde uh -huh. and theoretically pale skinned, but just always constantly tanned. And he kind of bases them a little bit on Irish culture and tropes uh -huh. too, but they're very, <laughs> very desert, yeah. rocky culture. And I always vision like for me being an American reader, the uh, American West mm -hmm. is how I vision the Ayo waste. But for people that I've seen talk about this that have read and they're from the Middle East or they're from Asia, they think of like Iran or mm -hmm. um, the Gobi Desert or like different realms that have a similar harsh landscape. Yeah. But they're in totally different, they're worlds away mm -hmm. from each of us. But we all can find this kind of similar, what does it take for people to exist in this wasteland essentially? And why would they choose to stay there? Mm -hmm. What value do they find living in this rough terrain? There's a lot of neat things about the Aiel I like. Yeah. And both Rand and Matt are going to get a chance to go find a lot of answers in yeah, the desert. Yeah, I hear Rand, uh, Matt has a really good time. Oh, yeah. Really good time. Really good time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He levels well, up a bit. What uh, you get for being based on Odin? Some stuff happens to you. Some stuff happens to you. <laughs> but you asked for it. I mean, literally, like the, he, want, he Odin... wants answers. He goes to seek knowledge. Yeah, that's that's Odin's whole deal. Okay, well, sometimes you get gotta pay the price. <laughs> uh, is there anything else? I feel like we've covered a lot. A lot of. Bases. I think we covered all the all the big characters that were introduced and the mm -hmm. the different changes. Yeah, I think that points was of the pretty quest. Much... You did well. All my notes, too. Nice. And clearly, you are invested enough in it and curious enough in it that you are curious about book four. So that's uh, good. Yeah. It's a good sign. Uh, we'll see. Um, I liked it. Like, I I enjoyed it. You know, I liked that the net was widening and gathering in more stories, you know. But as I said to you, I think before we started recording or whatever, my biggest problem was that it took me two months to read mm -hmm. because I got sick and you know we were at dragon con and then i started a new job and it was just very difficult i also like paused and read other books in the middle because i needed to read <laughs> books for my podcast that i have about books yep it's um, definitely a lot and i really i really prefer to sit down and read a book all the way through mm -hmm. or like to give a couple hours to a book at a time oh yeah and that is really the way that you should read the wheel of time books is to like spend time in them because if you're just picking it up reading one chapter and putting it down it 
takes forever and you don't get to like fall into the flow of it you yeah. know it's already so. structured so long and so it, it has a certain pace mm-hmm. uh in the way the chapters presented and the, the different point of view character shifts i think are very intentional in his overall writing style to keeping you moving in a, a just a certain even pace for me most of the time when i was reading these books I would literally be reading them on the way to and from school on the bus. Mm-hmm. I would be reading them in classes every chance I had. And then I would be you know, doing whatever homework and chores and other stuff I had to do. And then I would lay down and just read for mm-hmm. till I fell asleep. And with these kind of books, that meant several hours yeah. <laughs> delaying sleep because I wanted just one more chapter. Yeah. Um, and they, it's hard to find that kind of time. As adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Also, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if we have talked about this necessarily, but like, I think we all have shorter attention spans now. Yeah. Um, due in part to phones and the internet. Price of technology and, and, and it's, it's, it's literally cycles more difficult to short just sit down and do something for an hour. Yeah. Because you're like, I got to check my phone. I got to see what's on the internet. I got It's like we trained ourselves for that. Yeah. It's difficult. But it is, I mean, I will say it is worth it to put in the effort to sit down and read for an hour. Absolutely. Or 30 minutes or whatever just to. People are still writing books and still exploring great stories. And yeah. Jordan won't be the last one to write a great epic. Sanderson's doing a great job of it. He sure can't stop. <laughs> That's can't stop. <laughs> I'm very happy for him. <laughs> but yeah, excellent. You'll look forward to the next book whenever you're ready to get back to it. Yeah, you know, give me six to eight months. Yeah. It's, that's, I mean, as like a not really a schedule schedule that's been working out for me and like my life, actually, yeah. it's been like every six months I'm like, you know, it is time to read another yeah. real time And that's book. a fine pacing. That's a fine pacing. <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm going to say... Thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me, as always. Um, so I always do the media recommended recommendations at the end. And I'm going to say, I didn't talk about it very much, but I have to recommend, like, The Sandman, the TV show, and the comic books. Because so much of this book was specifically about the dreaming. And I've been calling it the dreaming, even though it's, like, Teleron Riyadh or whatever. But it's very similar. Daniel's doing like a happy dance. (laughs) You can't see it because this is a podcast. Um, I'm delighted by that. But just like, and and especially the like dreams uh, affecting and changing the world, you know, around you and and the effects of dreams on our daily lives and things like that. Um, So yeah, get you some more dream based media. Hell yeah. It's good. Now you know why I got so invested when you let me borrow your Sandman books. And I was like, why have I not read these ever before? Because it's literally so much of the stuff I loved about Wheel Mm -hmm. of Time. And these aren't the only stories that talk about dreaming and deal with like crossovers and the way dreams affect us. Dreams have been part of humanity's stories Mm -hmm. since the early ages of storytelling, oral oral tales. Mm -hmm. So there's just a couple of beautiful executions of carrying on that tradition that are absolutely wonderful. Um, the book I was going to recommend is a book that just released today, uh, called the origins of the wheel of time. Um, so if you're a fan of the wheel of time and particularly if you've finished the wheel of time, (laughs) 
I highly recommend this new book by Michael Livingston. He is a historian that teaches at the Citadel, where Robert Jordan used to teach as well. And he investigates the myths and history of Robert Jordan himself, as well as the cultural myths that he uses to build the Wheel of Time. It's very good. Cool, very cool. Cool. I said thank you already for joining me, but you know, thank you again. <laughs> we'll do this again in six months. Yeah, 16 months. <laughs> 16 months. <laughs> Join me next time to hear about The Star's My Destination by Alfred Bester. Uh, and if you want to actually read my review on Blackwater Sister, that is on my website. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it or just share it with a friend. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast or at BacklogBooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this extra long time with me and Daniel. Uh, I hope to talk with you again soon. It's funny, the, um, it took me like two weeks to read The Eye of the World and I was such a baby about it. I was like, oh, I can't believe it took me two weeks to read this book. And then it took me one month to read The Great Hunt. Mm -hmm. And then it took me two months to read The Dragon Reborn. <laughs> so it's just going to take longer. <laughs> Next one's going to be four months. One after that's going to be eight months. It's just going to... I was about to say, that starts to make little sense. Like I said, the, the middle books are the longest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, both, uh, Fires of Heaven, book five and Lord of Chaos, book six are, uh, between 900 and 1000 pages Oof. long paperback. It's rough, buddy. Yeah. <laughs>